1824, not far from the end of his unbelievably short life, Franz Schubert wrote a letter to a friend. Think of a man whose health will never be right again and who in sheer despair over this always makes things worse instead of better. Think of a man whose brightest hopes have come to nothing, for whom the happiness of love and friendship has nothing to offer but at the best, pain. Schubert goes on in this mood, in this letter, quoting one of his most famous songs, Gretchen am Spinnrader, Gretchen at the spinning wheel. My peace is gone, my heart is sore, I shall find it never, never more. But then, just as so often in Schubert's music, the mood suddenly tips on its head. And in the same letter, next paragraph, he goes on. So far as songs are concerned, I've not done much that's new, but I have tried my hand at several big instrumental things, for I wrote two string quartets and an octet, and I intend to write another quartet, and generally speaking, to pave my way to grand symphony in this manner. Well, this certainly doesn't sound like a man whose brightest hopes have come to nothing, does it? I've often seen those two paragraphs from that letter quoted as though they were two completely separate letters and thought, oh, well, Schubert must have recovered by this stage in 1824 by the time he wrote this. But no, it's one paragraph straight after the other. Suddenly a complete change, it seems, in perspective. And certainly if you're talking about brightest hopes coming to nothing, you wouldn't get that impression from most of the music in that octet that he mentions having just composed in 1824. <laughs> That's the beginning of the main allegro of the first movement of Schubert's Octet. Thanks to, to the members of the Britain Symphonia who are tackling it today. That music came with me, as it were, on a recent holiday my wife and I took in the South Tyrol where we went walking in the mountains. In fact, there was one day when we braced ourselves to set up a 3,000-meter mountain that I found this tune come straight into my head.
Schubert loved walking, especially in the Austrian Alps, and a lot of his music has a kind of walking pace underneath it. It seems strange that Schubert should be invoking this wonderful world of outdoor fun and adventure and fresh air when he's feeling, apparently, according to this letter, as though everything in his life has come to nothing. Well, it is a mistake to go looking for direct reflections of a composer's mood in the music that he's writing at the time. You think how often your own mood changes, even in the course of a single day. Certainly, if you're taking several months to write a symphony, how often your mood must change in that. And if you simply reflected the way you felt at the time you wrote, it would be a bizarre kaleidoscope of emotions instead of a kind of continuous narrative of the kind that makes the best kind of symphonic music. But it's also, you can tell from that letter, that Schubert was full of hope. In the next sentence, Schubert is turning to the thought of this grand symphony project that he wants to write and the inheritance of Beethoven. And it really seems that this octet was a huge step in the direction towards that extraordinary precocious symphonic mastery, the great C major symphony as it's known. Because you can see the octet as a kind of chamber symphony. All right, it's in six movements, which is much more like a classical divertimento than a classical symphony. But it has a big, ambitious first movement, we've just heard the beginning of the Allegro, and a magnificent symphonic scherzo, which clearly shows the influence of Beethoven. And if you look at the way that the octet is laid out, it is actually like an orchestra, a symphony orchestra in miniature. We've got the string section, which is the biggest section. We've got the brass, just one horn, and the woodwind section the clarinet and the bassoon here. Schubert was partly relying on an important model for his octet. Now, interestingly enough, he often did that. Um, he used to be taken to task for the fact that he sometimes stole, as it were, forms from other composers and reworked them in his own style. But I'm reminded of um, a remark by Stravinsky, who passionately loved Schubert's music, a great composer doesn't imitate, he steals. Um, Schubert certainly knew how to steal things, but in the process transform them so that they end up sounding completely unlike the model that he's taken for his purposes. One of the most important models, perhaps the most important model for the octet, was Beethoven's Septet, Opus 20. This was the most popular work of Beethoven's in his own lifetime. And it uses the same forces as the Schubert octet, except there's only one violin instead of two. And there are the similar kind of types of movements. There are six movements, but they're in a slightly different order. Beethoven's second movement in his septet, like Schubert's, is a very beautiful, very captivating, songful adagio. This is how Beethoven's adagio begins.
a lovely melody, and Schubert obviously felt, right, what can I do in response to this? And up to a point, he models the beginning of his slow movement very clearly on what Beethoven does. Schubert starts with a melody, a very long breathed melody for the clarinet. Then the phrase is taken up by the violin. Again, with a very simple, gently undulating accompaniment underneath, all very much like Beethoven. But the effect is completely different. We've stepped from Beethoven's world, recognizably Beethoven's world, into Schubert's world, and it is another world entirely. Very typical Schubertian final phrase, like a kind of sigh coming to a close there. Very beautiful. The piece generally, though, has a kind of outdoor Austrian pastoral feeling, exactly the kind of feeling he deliberately cultivated and developed in the great C major symphony the following year. And it's all very different from the kind of dark introspection of the unfinished symphony and of some of the songs he wrote about that time, just a couple of years earlier. Perhaps Schubert was thinking that if his ill health at the time was preventing him from enjoying the outdoors in real life, then perhaps he could turn to it and relive that experience through music. Certainly, the fourth movement, which is a set of variations, has something of the quality of a kind of carefree outdoor stroll, a saunter, you might say.
Now that tune is a rare example of Schubert actually reusing something he'd written earlier. Now, considering the fantastic amount that Schubert wrote in his 31 years of existence, nearly a thousand catalogued works, which range in anything from individual songs to song cycles to operas and huge symphonies, it's quite remarkable how rarely he repeats himself, well certainly how rarely he recycles his own material, even unfinished works. Generally speaking, he leaves them alone and moves on to something else. Now, on this occasion, he's taken a tune, which seems to have gone down rather well, from a little operetta he wrote earlier called Die Freunde von Salamanca, The Friends from Salamanca. And it's a tune about enjoying being out in the open air under a bright sky. Perhaps he chose it for that reason. Or maybe he just thought it would make a really good variation tune and it was a pity to waste it in a medium like German operetta, which at the time didn't seem to have much future in Vienna, how things changed later. But Schubert takes this tune on a lovely stroll, as it were, through changing landscapes with picturesque or touches of romantic mystery, all sorts of color changes, mood changes, texture changes here and there. At the same time, even here in this little tune at this point, which seems to come from somewhere else, you can see how carefully Schubert is paving his way, as he puts it, towards Grand Symphony. Now, one of the things that Beethoven had demonstrated so magnificently and convincingly in a symphony was that arguments work better as a whole when you have unifying motives, ideas that connect movements to movements or contrasting ideas to one another. And Schubert especially uses here a rhythmic motif. There's a little rhythmic figure which runs throughout the octet, virtually from the beginning to the end. Here's the very beginning of the octet. There's a slow introduction with this crucial figure.
You see, no matter how much the melodic line changes its shape, its curve, its up and down patterns, there's one little rhythm there, da-da-dum, which keeps coming back all the time. It's almost obsessively present. No matter how much the shape of the melody may change, that rhythm is there in the background, da-da-da. And here it is again at the beginning of the allegro. Different tempo, but still da-da-dum, da-da-dum. It's there all the time. Long note, two short notes, like this. It's amazing how much variety, isn't it, Schubert manages to get from that simple little rhythmic pattern, da-da-dam. All the time it seems to be creating new shapes. And throughout this fairly substantial first movement, that goes on being the case. But it's not the end of it when we get to the end of the first movement. Um, here's the scherzo, the third movement. Here again, listen out for that dum-da-dum, dum-da-dum. <laughs> Fascinating, isn't it? And until it, I realized how important this rhythm was in the octet, I, I can't say that I'd noticed. It all seems so effortless and natural, and yet it's very constantly and carefully returning to this rhythmic template. It's even there in that lovely slow movement melody we heard introduced by the clarinet at the beginning of the second movement. I'll ask our clarinetist Joy Farrell just to play the first few bars of this. again da da dum and just so that you don't miss it Schubert carefully puts a crescendo and then an accent underneath it just so that you don't miss that important little unifying touch there even that little variation tune in the fourth movement that Schubert took from his early operetta Schubert made one little change when he rearranged it for the octet and would you believe he changed the rhythm so that we get a little da da dum I'll ask our first violinist Jacqueline Shave just to stress that rhythm for us That's not in the original version of the tune. Schubert carefully changed it so that the tune would have something in common with the ideas in the rest of the work. In fact, that rhythm turns up in all the six movements of the octet, only it's done with such subtlety that unless it's pointed out to you, you might not notice. So the octet shows how strong, how naturally fluid in a way, how reflexive, you might say, Schubert's symphonic thinking was becoming by this stage in his career. Well, as we've heard, the octet begins with an atmospheric slow introduction. From the evidence of the score, it looks as though Schubert thought of the main allegro of this movement as about double the speed of this adagio introduction. 
That means that when he gets to the recapitulation, the main passage where the first theme returns, he can just ease back into that slow introduction without really a change of gear. Simply writes out the adagio original in double the original note values. And the whole thing has an incredible sort of smoothness and inevitability, beautiful planned quality about it. seamless bit of symphonic writing. The section's so dovetailed you can hardly tell where one section begins and another section ends. There's nothing sectional about it at all. It feels like one idea flows into the next and onwards. He's really mastered that kind of forward developmental thinking at this stage. Well, the octet is a, a big work. It's not that far short of an hour in total, and we'll be hearing it complete pretty soon. But before we do, there's just one other significant detail, I think, that I'd like to pick out. We haven't heard anything from the finale yet, the sixth movement, and there's a reason for that. Up to this point, generally speaking, this has given the impression that most people describe it as a pretty outdoor, carefree, romantically pleasurable work. Well, that makes the beginning of the finale, the sixth movement, come as a bit of an emotional jolt. Often Schubert does, sometimes it seems maybe to provide a kind of signpost to what it might be that was on his mind, is to invoke the mood of one of his songs, particularly a song that he might have been writing at the time. And it's interesting that very often what Schubert echoes from his songs is not the vocal line, the melody, but the accompanying figuration, the element in the song, which is what establishes the mood, sets the color, the atmosphere, the tone. There's a very similar idea 
to that opening figure that we've just heard. In a song Schubert wrote just before he wrote the octet, it's called Die Götter Griechenlands, the gods of ancient Greece. And it begins and ends in a rather extraordinary way, because basically it's a song in A major, and it's about the kind of ideal beauty of ancient Greece as is represented in its art. But it begins and ends with a tiny phrase in the minor key, with a questioning phrase. This is how the song begins. We've got an arrangement here, as it were, for octet. minor key figure, da-da-dum, da-da-dum, is very similar to that strange dark figure that appears at the beginning of the finale of the octet. And we know that it was a lot on Schubert's mind at the time because he also quotes it even more literally in the work he wrote before he wrote the octet, the A minor string quartet. It turns up actually note for note the same. Could there be a clue in this as to what was on Schubert's mind? Well, I think there is, because the first phrase that the clarinet, who's standing in for our singer here, plays there, is to the words, schöne Welt, wo bist du? Beautiful world, where are you? Or beautiful world, where have you gone? The song itself mostly celebrates the beauty of that world, but there we have that tiny little frame, the questioning at the beginning and the end. Where is this beauty? Does it really exist? Uh, could it just be an illusion, after all, a cherished illusion, the kind of illusion we need in order to live, but an illusion all the same? Perhaps that's what it was that Schubert was trying to say in the octet here at this point. He's created this idyll, this outdoor, healthy, happy, vigorous work in the octet, which is full of images of walking, the kind of pleasures that he enjoyed before this mysterious and terrifying illness began to dominate his life and change his life so drastically. But then there comes this little passage at the beginning of the finale with that reference to that question. Schöne Welt, wo bist du? Beautiful world, where are you? It's as though he's saying, is any of this real? You know, is this all illusion? Is illusion all I have to hope for at this stage? Well, it is possible, maybe, that Schubert took this idea and reused it, not because he felt there was any special meaning in it, but just because he thought, that's a good idea. Maybe I can get a bit more life out of that. But I wonder, because there's something very striking about the way that this slow, spooky, dark introduction music returns very near the end of the finale, very close indeed to the end of the finale. The finale begins with a very spirited allegro, which seems to kind of want to brush off the memory of this dark, haunted introduction with a return to the outdoor idyll. It gets going very quickly, and it's as though it's the same. No, enough of that. Off we go. <laughs> Back to normal, everything fine, unpleasant memories banished, forgotten. 
or so it seems, until, as I said, just before the coda of the finale. Then that music returns. But this time, the slow introduction is not carefully integrated into the tempo of the main movement, so it stands out even more. And it's got these strange shuddering figures, trembling figures added on the violin at the top. It throws the music really kind of off balance, emotionally speaking. And again, although Schubert tries to resort to the main tempo, something has happened, it seems, to destabilize this mood. And so on, until Schubert screws up the tempo even more and, as it were, flies off in top jollity mode at the end. But it does seem to me, at least as one listener, and I know that there are other people who feel like this, to leave a kind of question mark over the work. Is the idyll that Schubert celebrates here real? How real is it? Or is he saying that it's truly impossible, as in so many of his songs, where he seems to suggest that you can only find as it were, the consolation, the ideal, the utopia you seek in dreams. There's a kind of a political dimension to this in a way as well, because unlike Beethoven, who was born in the age of Napoleon and the French Revolution, and who believed passionately that things could be changed for better on this earth, Schubert grew up largely in the age after the defeat of Napoleon and the repressive regime of Prince Clemens von Metternich in Vienna, when the whole world seemed to change and that kind of political utopian thinking seemed, went rapidly out of fashion. And for the young romantics of Schubert's age, it seems that the revolution or the desire for change went inward. Uh, it turned inward. Somehow or other, there's this shift towards this belief that maybe utopia can only be found within, only in the world of dreams or of imagination. Maybe even this seemingly genial octet has something to say along these lines. Well, you can judge for yourself what you think Schubert is trying to say here, whether there is a complicated message behind this seemingly smiling work. As we hear Schubert's octet in F complete for us now, performed for us, ladies and gentlemen, by the members of the Britain Symphonia. <laughs> 